The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, the economy, startups, creatives, venture capital. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We talk about the, the large companies, the CNNs of the world, right? You know, owned by David Zasloff, the Comcast of the world. I mean, huge companies, multi-billion dollar companies that are still kind of winging it when it comes to digital. You know, let's throw some things here. Let's throw some things there. You know, they're dealing with subscriber fatigue. In case you missed it, from a former TV news executive now described as Instagram's news concierge, to a dermatologist testing the ability of AI to better detect skin cancer, to a young woman who went from a childhood of poverty to VCU's student body presidency to now candidacy for Virginia's House of Delegates. We're back with highlights from recent broadcasts, so do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with a rewind to my recent interview with Barry Ritholtz, the widely followed Wall Street commentator and money manager. He shared some paradoxical observations about remote work and productivity. Talk to me about work from home. I remember seeing you. I don't know why it was like crossing Grand Central once. You had the scarf around you and people clearly recognize you from TV and they're, they're kind of rushing you and asking you about things in 2011 and 2012. New York had a buzz to it, obviously, before the pandemic. And now it's just eerie, even on a Monday morning. I don't know if you, if you exit out of uh, that really deep three-mile down new you know, Grand Central Terminal, LIRR exit, or if you come in at the, the Penn Station atrocity. <laughs> and this is just a segue into the whole work from home paradigm. Like I, I feel for all of those lunch clip joints that would get away with charging you $22 for a chopped salad, but it's a microcosm of what's happening across the country. I can show you Washington, D.C., L.A., Boston, and you're seeing that there's an inverse relationship between productivity and having to come back to the office. Yeah, there's a couple of amazing data points around work from home and, and what's going on. First off, the United States is doing much more poorly in terms of return to office, you know, RTO versus WFH, than Europe. And when you look into why, well, Europe tends to have smaller homes, so there's less space to set up a home office, but they also have much better childcare and they have a much, much, much more robust uh, mass transit system. So it's not as time consuming to get to and from work. People tend to live closer to the city center, so the commute is reasonable. In the US, the cost of housing has gone up so much that people live further and further away, and it's just a giant, unpleasant time suck. So there's that. Second, when you look at some of the stats around who in the United States is doing better and who's doing worse, big cities are doing worse on average than the rest of the country. Again, it probably goes back to that mass transit. The average is somewhere around 60%. Cities are doing worse. New York is doing something like 47%, just as an example, which means... Forget the offices that are just gone, that are empty, but the typical office, you know, half their staff isn't in on any given day. Uh, a handful of cities have kind of done better of figuring out a, a, a better way to do it. I'm, I'm looking for the chart that I, I pulled from Torsten Slock on this exact thing, but you could see all sorts of different numbers. I think Austin is doing pretty well and San Francisco is doing pretty poorly. Let's see if I can actually find... Here it is. Yeah, 50% seems to be the new metropolitan uh, return to office. And, and some of the best numbers, um, Austin is in the mid-60%. San Jose is in the high 30%. Um, 
San Francisco, D.C., and Philadelphia are low 40%. And New York, the biggest metro center, is 46%. So, uh, you know, when we talk about productivity, it's all the time that you spend getting ready for work, showering, shaving, getting dressed, going to the office. That commute is a killer. All the chit-chat, all the what we used to call water cooler talk, all that stuff, the endless meetings. This, You know, when you're on uh, Zoom calls, you could do other things. You could just blank out your video and you could find other stuff to do and be productive. You, you, when you're in the office, it's incredibly useful for collaborative work and for building a corporate culture. I don't want to say the office is total dead time. But for a lot of companies, it's a productivity killer. Not a big surprise that as return to office has upticked over the past 12 months, year over year productivity ha- has come down. And, and even as hours worked have gone up also, productivity fell 2.7% quarter to quarter and year over year it fell just under 1%. Output rose, hours worked rose, but, you know, your, your hours working are going up faster than output is, which means productivity has fallen. Barry, do you think the Fed and other bank regulators are potentially looking at this as a, as a brewing systemic crisis, i.e. banks made real estate loans based on a certain percentage of occupancy over the life of the lease and the lease rolled over and there are indications now that that's just not coming back. Maybe if unemployment were to shoot up again, you'd have a cudgel as an employer to say, show back up to the office or else. But even then, you get this overwhelming impression that there's way too much square footage out there. And there's a painful reconciliation that's in the offing. And to what extent does that become crisis-like, like the now forgotten savings and loan crisis? So let's go a little more recent. Uh, than the SNL crisis of the 80s and, and early 90s. So I recall writing research about retail in the United States heading into the financial crisis, not even 08, 09, but like 06 and 07. And the U.S. was over-retailed versus other economically advanced countries like Japan and regions like Europe I think the U.S. had something on a per capita basis, something like 22 square feet or 25 square feet per capita of retail space, and Europe was something like 12 square feet per capita, and Japan was 8 or 9 square feet. So we were wildly over-mauled, over-retailed, and it took a solid 12 years or so for that to ease off, and then the pandemic really kicked its butt, and, and we saw retail shops closing left and right. And and you'll notice when a retail store closes that sells goods that could be sold more cheaply on the the internet, it tends to be replaced with a services shop. I can't help but notice every time some shoe store or some local Gigo store closes, it's replaced with a educational tutor sort of shop or a karate shop or or something used to be a jamba used to be a jamba juice back in the day or a bank but both of those are distressed <laughs> brands right now and banks you know how many atms can anybody put up in a given region at a certain point you know you right. have to wor- worry about it so what i mean are the banks being scrutinized for this how does it work because it's like i would have said by the way if we go back to that new year's eve prediction that Suddenly, there is a big kink in the system akin to subprime in 2007 and 2008. I don't know if securitization was the Minsky moment or something else, but that commercial real estate distress would have been the epicenter of financial distress. But we're not really getting indications of that. It's kind of like, yeah, it is what it is. You know, 48% vacancy, 49% return to the office, 50% return to the office. But that hasn't hit the financials of real estate investment trusts or other landlords or the commercial property universe as much as I would have imagined. Um, it's a long, slow process. And that's why I wanted to to bring up the the Retail, as an example, basically, when you when you go out and look at how long it took for retail to sort of get, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, right-sized, it wouldn't be a big surprise to see the same sort of thing take place on the commercial real estate area. And, and just look at what happened in downtown Manhattan post-9-11. The whole world trade region primarily converted from 
office towers to residential towers. I'm not suggesting they knock these towers down and put up new ones. What they ended up doing was literally a conversion process, which is time consuming. You have to apply for it. You have to get permits. You have to raise the money. You have to put a plan together. And then you have to let everybody leave those offices, some of which are long-term leases, and then go through the process of converting it. One has to think in a supply-constrained residential nation like the United States, it would make sense for a lot of these offices to be converted. Now, there's a wonderful New York Times infographic about the 60s and 70s era buildings, office buildings that went up, that really are so deep with no access to a window. They're just these giant caverns that it's hard to create an apartment with no windows, no light. And so what they end up doing is taking that whole inner core of elevator banks and creating a inner courtyard. So now you have windows on the street side as well as the interior side, and you can create uh, a decent number of, of apartments that way. Barry, here's a wild card question for you. I, I kind of yawn when I hear about this latest debt ceiling impasse, but does it become a, a cried wolf type thing, or is there a certain moral hazard to partisans on Capitol Hill kind of bringing this up every now and then? I mean, it might have terrified us during the United States credit rating downgrade and the volatility of 2011, but the threat of which has happened so many times since that I, I kind of sense more of a collective yawn going into this perceived June period of running out of money to spend. Yeah, there, there's two factors that, that take place. One is we've seen this movie before multiple times. We know how it ends. But I continue to be astonished that politicians think we have zero memory. Hey, didn't we just come through an era where there were big unfunded tax cuts and big spending increases and there was no issue with the debt ceiling? Hey, if you want to argue that the pandemic was a one-off special thing and the first of three CARES Act, the $2 trillion CARES Act that was passed in 2020 was, you know, emergency, okay. But you got to explain the unfunded tax cuts. You got to explain all the other spending, just $7, $8 trillion in spending increases. Nobody cared about the debt ceiling. So I've learned that all of the deficit posturing is nonsense. I've heard from my entire adult life, the U.S. economy is going to die. We're going to lose our, our supremacy. The, the dollar will become worthless. We must get the deficit under control. Literally, I've heard that since I graduated college. And it turns out, to use a technical economic term, to be sheer bull****. It's just absolute nonsense. At a certain point, the deficit will eventually matter, but that point is nowhere near us. And as we've seen in Japan, whose debt-to-GDP ratio is double the United States, it's far, far off in the future. It's not anything we have to worry about for now. Is it a great thing? Do we want the country spending money recklessly and, and with, you know, abandon? No, but you know what? The government has to provide some basic services. You got to pave the roads. You got to have a military. You can't let your elderly go hungry. And, and there's a cost to that. And we need to be adults and address this in an adult way and not just embrace some half-hearted ideology that says, well, deficits are bad, but only when the other guy is in the White House. That, that's a, a, just a childish approach. You were listening to some of my recent interview with Barry Ritholtz. Listen to the entire episode at fullDRadio.com. Dr. Roxana Donishju is a Stanford dermatologist studying artificial intelligence and machine learning in skin cancer detection. She discussed the promises versus hazards versus hype in the exploding realm of AI. I'm fascinated by some of the stuff you've posted on Twitter, Roxana, about the robot eyes helping human eyes detect melanoma and other skin cancers. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here today. You know, AI is very big buzz term everywhere on Twitter. Every company is trying to invoke it. We're now an AI play or a machine learning play. It seems like if you juice up your press release with that, you'll get a higher valuation from Silicon Valley. But I'm fascinated, again, by how this can help 
the detection of skin cancer, which is an elusive game decidedly dependent on the eyes of the derm or the oncologist. A small freckle somewhere could conceivably metastasize into a lot worse. I'm reminded of the mole on the bottom of the late Bob Marley's foot, right? And all the various other things that can happen. So talk to me. When did you first get introduced to this field? You were pretty early on it. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading about it a couple years ago and what was going on with the field of computer vision, which is a field that basically takes images and tries to make predictions based on those images of what is going on in that image. And so as someone who was getting ready to do dermatology training at that time, I thought, well, you know, as humans, that's usually what we do in training. We look at lots of examples of what a skin cancer looks like and basically learn what the patterns and features are to distinguish them from benign lesions. And so it seems quite possible that that is something that you could then train a AI algorithm to do. Now, since since having some of those thoughts and actually spending several years doing research in this space, it always turns out that things are not as clear cut and as easy as you hope. But I do think that I think there's a lot of promise in this space. And I think the important thing is figuring out, you know, what is the reality that we can create versus cutting through what's been a lot of hype. Dr. Donish, you take me back to medical school or your residency or various internships. How are you benchmarked in terms of detecting suspicious lesions? There's a lot of noise out there. There are certain freckles that may or may not be, what, irregular around the margins. Right. I'm thinking of what was invoked in that Sopranos episode by Tony Soprano. But how are you judged then? Is there is there Are there expert eyes over you? Or was machine learning kind of as a benchmark any part of your formal education? Oh, no, machine learning was not part of my formal education. Um, Just how a medical resident learns and a resident is someone who's graduated from medical school, but is undergoing more specialized training. You see a lot of patients, but you have a senior physician with you as well. So you go in, you do the skin check, and then the senior physician comes in and does their assessment and gives you feedback on whether or not they agree about what lesions should be biopsied and what lesions shouldn't be biopsied. You get a second layer of feedback when you actually do the biopsy and you see what the results are. However, you can tell that there could be imperfections in that system. So like if the senior physician misses something, you might not learn that. You might miss that. Um, And I think, you know, this idea of what is the ground, what we call what is the ground truth, like what are, you know, what are things that are the true cancers versus not, is actually one of the difficulties when you're designing these model systems, because these AI algorithms often need labeled examples of what is a benign lesion, what is a malignant lesion in order to be able to learn the important features. And so if your examples are not properly labeled, that can cause an issue in the process. Doctor, step back for a minute, if you will, for our listeners and explain the mechanics of of skin cancer, how this goes from being something decidedly topical and superficial to, I guess, subcutaneous and worse. I mean, is 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 the killer in the metastasis? How does it work? When is it caught? How in the world could you possibly look at every freckle on a body or every suspicious legion times thousands of patients. I mean, unpack all of that for me. Yeah. So um, the most, I will first say that the most common two types of skin cancer, which are basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma very rarely metastasizes, not to say that it's impossible. I've seen some uh, rare cases. Squamous cell carcinoma has a little bit more potential to metastasize, but is usually caught early enough that it's not an issue. It's really melanoma that is the one that has the most metastatic potential and is is the most deadly of the three that I've mentioned. Now, of course, there are other exceedingly rare types of skin cancer, which I won't get into today, but uh, melanoma is the one that... uh, that we worry about. 
And when I do a skin exam, I'm basically looking at my eye, using my eyes to sort of see what lesions kind of pop out. So it doesn't mean that you necessarily look closely at every single lesion because many of the lesions are just very uniform looking. They don't look worrisome. They're nice and small and round and, you know, uniform color. And so I will then take a closer look with a a special device that has uh, magnification and special lighting at any one of them that sort of pops out to me. So it becomes deadly, let's say the melanoma. I mean, I, I, I know you're, <laughs> it almost sounds like something out of Seinfeld, somebody coming up to you at a wedding and saying, oh, do you mind if I show you what's on my shoulder in the ladies' room? But there is a big part of you by dint of iteration and how much experience you have in this that can detect if a skin lesion is problematic right off the bat. I mean, if, if the colors or edges are irregular. So the thing is that Yes, we have undergone training to sort of be able to detect features. Um, Some of it, you know, I could describe to you, there's the ABCDs of melanoma, which talk about asymmetry, the border, the number of colors, diameter of the lesion, and whether the patient has reported evolution or lesional change, which is obviously not something you can pick up with your eyes unless you have a prior photo. But there's this other thing where we call it the ugly duckling sign. So the lesion that just looks a bit different than everything else. So there are these different things as well as our training that helps us pick up what which lesions that we're most concerned about. And the idea behind using AI to help us here is that if, you know, these computer vision algorithms also learn features um, and they're most of them are pretty black box. So we can't really um, tell what features that they're using. Though my colleagues and I have been doing some really interesting research recently to try to basically dissect out what the algorithms are using to make their decision. But the idea behind using AI is that in the same way that you train a human with many examples of what a, you know, a melanoma is versus not melanoma, you could actually train an algorithm to do the same thing. And it could be a support tool for physicians. And physicians, I mean, depending on what research study you look at, you know, I biopsy probably on average, according to the research, I don't know my exact, you know, personal numbers, probably about, you know, nine lesions that I suspect to be a melanoma before detecting a true melanoma. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Dr. Roxana Donish Ju. She is a uh, dermatologist at Stanford, interested in bridging new technologies such as machine learning with clinical medicine. I mean, we're talking in this example about kind of unpacking the fascinating, you know, bleeding edge, the frontier of uh, using it in in terms of melanoma detection. Uh, Dr. Donish Ju, you looked askance at one of these, you know, in talking about false positives. One of these reports in the news this week that a doctor located a, a ridiculously small lesion. You know, an Oregon, Oregon dermatologist found a 0.65 millimeter mole, the world's smallest skin cancer spot, under a woman's eye. And you said you're calling for caution in this, that we're probably celebrating overdiagnosis. I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but what is the problem with that, honestly? If, if it catches something like that and you go in and, and you biopsy it, is there an element of crying wolf? Or are you taxing the system? Or are you making people complacent to the fact that the overwhelming majority of these skin spots are not going to be problematic? Yeah. So I think, again, difficult to make an assessment of exactly, I don't know what that pathology report showed. I will even say that studies have shown that there's variability, even among the same pathologists. There was a research study where they sent out slides to pathologists, the same slide to multiple pathologists, the same slide to the same pathologist months later. And there was variability in their melanoma diagnosis call, even amongst the same individual reading the same slide a couple months apart. So there is definitely some noise to this as well on what is diagnosed. And so... I just worry about technology that starts capturing, that starts identifying lesions, very, 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 very early lesions that actually, you know, we're not going to turn into anything bad. And so, you know, you were saying like, what it, you know, what, what's the negative there, right? Like, 
And as I mentioned, um, you know, we need to get better at figuring out which of these issue lesions are going to be truly problematic versus not. The issue is you give someone a diagnosis of a melanoma, and then they have to have this very extensive surgery, surveillance, all the anxiety associated with that diagnosis, carrying that sort of on their medical record if they are trying to. But isn't the upshot vigilance? And I'm not trying to be sadistic here, but if 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 I my impression is always that skin cancer, you know, my aunt and cousin are dermatologists. Uh, in LA and in Miami, they've always been urging people to be more vigilant about this. People who were raised in the 1950s and 60s who slathered suntan lotion on themselves and were fair-skinned and think this is kind of a, a, a tolerable chronic problem to have, but in fact, it can become deadly. And I was always under the impression that the bias leans toward kind of under-reporting and under-detection. So would it be that harmful if AI was an extra nudge, kind of the way Katie Couric was with with colonoscopies. Right. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be vigilant. And particularly if you have risk factors like excessive sun exposure and, you know, blistering sunburns and things like that. I'm just saying that any technology we develop, we have to study its impact on patients and the health system. Right before when we're, as we're thinking about implementation, because we want our technology to do exactly that for, you know, if this technology encourages patients who are at high risk of skin cancer and helps detect those skin cancers in individuals earlier, that's great if it actually improves outcomes for patients. If it turns out that the technology leads to more extra biopsying and not an actual improvement in catching more um, skin cancers that might have been problematic down the line, then the technology is not really improving the patient outcomes. That's all I'm saying. That was some of my recent episode, Welcome to the Machine, which included Dr. Roxana Donesh-Jew. Listen to the entire episode at link fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Moshe Winunu, described as, quote, Instagram's favorite news concierge and a one-man news brand, came on to discuss the existential angst underlying the HR turmoil at Fox News and CNN. Being such a veteran of linear TV and cable news, what with Bloomberg TV, CBS News, Fox News before that. This is a business in disarray. It's declining because of the decline of linear TV. And even while we were all homebound during the pandemic, fewer and fewer people were watching cable news and the evening news. And cord cutting is a way of life right now. And certainly you had to dabble when you were at CBS News with CBS News Digital Direct, which you know, is not linear TV. Right now, effectively, to step back from all this, it's up for grabs. It's completely open. If the primacy is the platform, you know, the iPhone, the tablet, the Roku, whatever device you're using, it's really the talent or the personalities or the the sweat equity that can rise up. The issue we face as an industry right now, Robin, is no one has quite figured out digital. No one has figured out how to make the same money they were making on the linear traditional platforms and this goes across the sectors, in the digital sphere. And even like, look at the headlines of the past month, right? BuzzFeed News going down. Insider.com making additional cuts. Morning Brew making additional cuts. Uh, we can, we'll talk about the cable stuff in a second. But these were some of the success stories of the past decade in a media landscape littered uh, with upstarts that never quite made it. Um, these were the success stories. These are the ones we thought they know what they're doing. Well, well, the venture cap they had venture capital money and maybe they looked puffier than they actually were. In the end, if you were dependent on online ad dollars, that stuff hasn't scaled well. We no. see that a willingness to pay, such as the New York Times' subscriber base, such as, you know, it's very hard for Spotify to rest a lot of audio upstarts. They might have gotten great valuations pre-money or post-money, but it's brutally hard to get the end user to pay for something a la carte. That's the thing is there's two ways to make money if you are a media company, subscribers, your customers, or advertisers. And everyone has kind of a different calculation. Are we 60-40 advertising subscription? Are we 90-10? Are we 80-20? There's been the, you know, there was the rise of Substack in the past couple of years. These are individual journalists who have left 
larger institutions to start their own brands, the Barry Weisses of the world, um, several others. But doesn't that hit up against login fatigue where how many times can you have me substack someone? You know, we broke up the cable. If I looked at my old $180 cable bill and I now smash it into pieces, this much for Spotify, this much for Netflix, maybe throw in a Hulu or Disney Plus for the kids. New York Times wants my money. You hit up against so much subscriber fatigue. There's the Amazon Prime thing. And now you're having all of these really great content creators and journalists trying to hit me up a la carte. Yep. Aren't we effectively building up the likes of Vox and others who can just go in and acquire, you know, they have platforms, they have stature, they have marketing apparatus. How how is this working out in your head right now? Because you really stand out yeah. as a kind of a sole proprietor on Instagram, having been produced by Legacy News. I mean, honestly, Robin, it changes every quarter, right? If you, when we had our last conversation, when we spoke two years ago, this environment is moving so quickly and there's kind of the hot, strategy of the week, the hot strategy of the month that various companies are pursuing. But what you deal with, you know, we're talking about individual creators here. I mean, talk about the the large companies, the CNNs of the world, right? You know, owned by David Zaslav, the Comcast of the world. I mean, huge companies, multi-billion dollar companies that are still kind of winging it when it comes to digital. You know, let's throw some things here. Let's throw some things there. You know, they're dealing with subscriber fatigue, right? They're dealing with the fact that they still can't charge for advertising what they get linearly. Describe that. The cable package, it's table stakes for as impaired as the brand is. No offense. I know you go on. I know you're friends with Chris Licht. CNN is, you can't have a cable package without CNN, just like you can't have it without ESPN. And so they get these carriage fees that are really mother's milk. And it's hard to self-disrupt out of that and say, all cable be damned, we're going straight to digital. Because again, it's a problem of dollars replaced by dimes. That's the thing. So when you, as a consumer, if you still have cable... If you have Verizon Fios or, you know, even if you have YouTube TV and you're paying a certain number of dollars a month, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever, that money, now view that money going to different networks. Like Fox can demand in order for Rupert to make all the Fox entities, the broadcast network, Fox News, Fox Business, etc. He says, I need five bucks a month for my channels or six bucks a month for my channels. So now the, Disney Disney extorts you as well with right. ESPN, which has had more primacy before, but e, ABC, ESPN, the various ESPN colleges and everything can take a chunk out of that pot. They take a chunk. So you're paying Fios 70 bucks a month. Fios is then paying Rupert Murdoch $6, is then paying Iger and the team at Disney $4 for ESPN, ABC, etc. And that's sort of how that has worked. And that sub fee, what they call it, a subscription fee model, has been the core. So that is how Fox brings in a billion dollars a year, right? That is how Comcast through, you know, we're going to make CNBC, you know, we're going to group together CNBC, USA, Bravo, et cetera, uh, and charge you a certain amount. CBS now has that through Paramount. They have MTV, Comedy Central, et cetera. Now, the cable companies are getting smart to this saying, as people cut the package, I can say bye-bye to some of your cable channels. They're not as vital as they once were. And so... Okay, so now you're making less if you're Bob Iger at Disney off of sub fees. There's a sort of existential crisis around ESPN. ESPN sort of being the last uh, bastion of why you would have live television because one of the core- Live sports. Sports is like the last reason left. Sports and news are the last reasons left to have a live TV package. Otherwise, you got Netflix, you got, you know, pick HBO Max, you got whatever you want. And even then, Amazon is forayed into NFL Thursday nights, right? They've dabbled in these things that they can- theoretically pull off live sports and maybe that's just a test pilot and the games are not nearly as premium as monday night football or espn or sunday night football but it shows you where the future is headed and amazon has so much money to spend and these packages come up every few years i mean robin this might be the last time where cbs has afc football and fox has nfc football when those packages come up again you can imagine that they got new players in the game. By the way, Netflix has been flirting with live. It didn't work out so well for their last reality show live. But, you know, Netflix is like, we do live TV now. Okay. They're trying to build up that. So when we deal with this business dilemma here, you have these major media companies that have been making a lot of money off these cable sub fees. Their packages are gradually coming up for renewal. They're making less off those sub fees. In the meantime, they've launched these streaming platforms, which they're charging a certain subscription for, making a certain amount of money. But then at some point, Growth is finite, right? Especially as a consumer, you're like, how can I subscribe to Peacock and Paramount Plus and HBO Max and Netflix 
and Disney and Hulu go on and on and on. So now they're competing. And so ultimately, what's left? You can increase what you charge people a month. You can then incorporate advertising, something Netflix says it, w- it was never going to do, but now they Which realize they're going to do it. Yeah. And, and at the same time, you know, you also have lost your ability to build a mass audience because the audience is so disparate. You know, like I think we've talked about this before. 40 years ago, the evening newscasts of the networks, the ABC, you know, Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, and Dan Rather, they were each commanding between 15 to 30 million people a night watching those shows. And that has been cut more than in half in the last couple of decades. The best show, I think, is ABC World News. David Muir gets around 7 million. Collectively, the three shows bring in about 15 to 17 million people. Individually, each of those shows used to get that a little over a decade ago. And so with that, that translates to advertising dollars, right? If I'm Pfizer and I'm buying an ad on your on your uh, broadcast, well, depending on the size of your audience, the age of your audience, I pay you accordingly. So you have advertising dollars diminishing on the broadcast nets. You have the sub fees diminishing. And you're still trying to figure out digital in a highly competitive environment. So meanwhile, Fox News, which is the most lucrative cable news channel, from a demo perspective, what you guys call winning the demo, it's it's demographically hardly attractive. My understanding is that it's overwhelmingly 60-year-old people and above, a monolithic audience. You see- You're being kind at 60, Robin. Well, the my it's pillow, closer to 70. La- it's closer to 70. My pillow, my pillow, pharma, laxatives, yeah. uh, lawsuit things, and even the more radioactive stuff is we know that we wanted to get into this talk of Tucker Carlson being ejected Monday, their highest rated opinion host, if you will, on the same day that the opposite non-correlating asset, if you, you know, you followed investing, Don Lemon at CNN, you know, they could be in a knife fight. They both get ejected for various different reasons on the same day, which was like a Black Monday for media, in addition to, was it the president of NBC Universal? Right. That was on Sunday. So, I mean, that got that got eclipsed by this. You know, we say in Passover, what made this ejection different from all other ejections? Tucker Carlson, you would think that a network that had been feckless and it's, had suffered the likes of Bill O'Reilly and other people in Lou Dobbs for years and years and years would let this pass. So let's take these separately. The Don Lemon thing shouldn't be surprising to those who follow this industry. He wasn't commanding a major audience. The show that he had joined, uh, the morning show, hasn't really been growing as much as they would have liked. At the same time, you have his kind of unforced errors on air. Multiple mistakes, suspensions, misogynistic comments, right? Saying Nikki Haley's not in her prime. I Googled it. Women are in their primes in their 20s or 30s. Like, dude. And then you had a variety story that came out that basically suggested that this wasn't a one-off. This is a pattern of conduct over 20 years to female colleagues. So it was only a matter of time. Now, over on the Fox side, in talking to people that I know over there, there was complete shock, silence in the newsroom. They thought that that was never going to happen. It was so surprising that the network was still promoting, as of Monday morning, what Tucker was going to be doing that night. That is how closely held this was. That is how much of a shock it was. I mean, if you look at the announcement on Fox News, of uh, I think it was anchor Harris Faulkner, announcing his departure. It was funereal. Like it was Ashen. Yes. Yeah. And so what happened there? He's the highest rated talent. He commands just in relative terms, 3 million viewers a night, the highest rated personality in cable. He's the star. Now, there are a lot of advertisers, blue chip advertisers that were not advertising on his show. And there's a subsequent piece, I think in the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday that goes into the fact he wasn't as lucrative as he could have been by dint of the fact that he was py- he was he was a bit of pyromaniac in terms of provocation. Correct. That blue chip brands, despite all the demography and everything, did not want to be associated with. Right. Them. Despite being the highest rated show on cable news, he wasn't making the money that the highest rated show on cable news should make because the advertisers yeah. that were willing to advertise with him aren't able to pay that amount of money. Now, what he was able to do was because he commanded that sort of ratings when. Fox goes to the providers that we talked about earlier, Verizon, et cetera. They're like, you need to have Fox News on your system and you need to pay us. So he helped in that way. So it was split. Now, as far as their decision here, I mean, there's a lot of speculation going on, right? Was this Rupert? You know, the LA Times says this was Rupert. There's another report out from Axios that says this is Lachlan, the son, kind of commanding his authority here, that ultimately they had just paid out $787 million in a settlement to Dominion. And, you know, yes, Fox has $4 billion cash on hand right now, and they can pay that sort of thing out, but how much of a liability is he? And there's this larger thing, Robin, which has been an issue at Fox 
for going on seven years now since the departure firing of Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes was the last real manager there that could manage the talent. Since then, the feeling internally there has been that the talent manage the executives. Now manage the talent or herd the cats, if you will, the wildcats. And, and the talent is responsive to the audience. And that's what you learned in the Dominion case, is that this rare scenario where it's not a news organization that is informing its audience of what's happening. It's a news organization that's informing its audience of what it wants to hear. You were listening to some of my chat with Moshe Winunu, the former CBS News producer who now runs Mo News. You can listen to the episode in its entirety at link fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Finally, a flashback to my 2018 interview with Adele McClure, who went from a childhood of poverty to VCU's student body presidency to now candidacy for Virginia's House of Delegates. Now, your mother was very busy working as a single mother. I mean, you, you'll get into it later. You didn't know your father uh, until very recently. But when was this made apparent to you? Did she have to pull you aside and say, kids, you need to pull more than the typical share of, of childhood weight that we have it rough? Was there a kind of a a formal presentation she unfortunately <laughs> had to make? Uh, there, there was no formal presentation uh, I feel like uh, she was so busy trying to take care of us and then also trying to work uh, over 40 hours in multiple jobs to to pay the bills. Uh, so I don't think that she thought to sit us down and tell us what was happening. We just kind of saw it unfold before our eyes. And, and when we got that first eviction or when we had the lights off, I mean, it was pretty apparent. So and she would just say, well, I don't have the money to pay for it. And so I would and, you know, specifically in Virginia, in Fairfax County, I would accompany her. My brother and I would accompany her to uh, many of the different nonprofits, churches, um, you know, government offices to beg for someone to pay for our light bill or to give us food or uh, pay for our rent that month or, or even just subsidize it so she can have some time to find some money to pay it off so we're not on the streets. So it was you know, pretty apparent. And that's when I thought to myself, you know what, I need to try to find a job as, you know, quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, the job at nine, of course, at the age of nine, Yeah, that that I didn't make money from that. I did do car washes at that age. But the job at nine is I went into the apartment complex uh, leasing office and I said, hey, I know there are child labor laws. <laughs> so I know that I can't work for money, but could I work for cookies? And, uh, you know, maybe some of the trinkets that they had. And they agreed. So, you know, every single day I would go to um, when I wasn't in school, maybe on the weekend. Uh, and, at, and when I got out of school, I would walk up to uh, the office and they'd hand me a stack of papers and tell me to put them on each of the apartment doors. And um, I felt like if I created this relationship with the apartment leasing office, maybe they're less likely to evict us. And then also, you know, I get paid in cookies. So, you know, that would curb my appetite for just a little bit. When do you recall your first eviction? Let's see. Were you in elementary school? Was it in the vicinity of that time? I mean, you knew about the present threat of eviction mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. mother enough to go and seek a apprenticeship at the leasing office. Mm -hmm. well, I, I think my mom told me that we received notice and then somehow she was able to come up with the money. But I didn't necessarily see the effects of it until later. And, um, you know, she's had an extremely tough life herself, and, and she's had to deal with a series of evictions all of her life. And one eviction in particular spiraled out of control um, when she – or her life spiraled, spiraled out of control uh, after that when she gave her cousin some money uh, to pay her bill. My mom got evicted and then ended up, you know, homeless and losing my brother and my sister to the foster care system and – and it just went downhill from there. So I feel like for my mom, it was it was very normal. Um, she well, she knew it wasn't normal, but it was a very normal occurrence to her. And um, so when she would break it to us, it wouldn't sound like 
something very devastating. It just seemed like this is something that we could come back from. So she um, kind of instilled in us the fact that we need to get an education and we need to do well in school uh, in these, you know, free educational um, environments. And, and that's what we did. We did our best and, and we worked hard in school, uh, even though it was a little difficult. Um, there was a, certainly an achievement gap with, with moving from school to school and then also thinking about what you're going to eat that night and how your mom's going to pay the bills and the rent. One of the painful memories I have from elementary school, I just remember my father would dutifully send me off every morning with a Ziploc bag of uh, three quarters for school mm-hmm. lunch at Highland Oaks Elementary. And then, at, you know, adjusting for inflation, I think, I think it became a dollar. But the line was always held up. And I remember Rosie the cashier. It wasn't lunch shaming kids, but it was getting kids to kind of swear that their parents paid that balance. They were constantly moving papers around at the front of the line and they'd make another line for free and reduced lunch. And I would have I would have imagined even then that if somebody couldn't afford lunch, certainly the public school system in this country would give them free and reduced lunch. In fact, there was a breakfast program. You would you would think and then growing up, uh, you know, taking sociology courses, being a taxpayer, that there'd be a safety net, that there'd be aid to families with dependent children, food stamps, SNAP, whatever you call it, um, emergency medical insurance for kids. How was that in practice, for example, with with school lunch and the school safety net? Um, I do remember receiving free and reduced lunch. I can't remember. uh, I think at some point it was reduced and then they had to move me to free lunch. And there was, um, in my mind, a separate line. And and I think that the lunch ladies made it pretty apparent when when it was free um, because with the other kids in line, they would tell them the balance on the card. And then with me or other kids with free free and reduced lunch, um, they just – you know, didn't tell us any kind of balance and they just told us to move on. Um, and But I was definitely thankful for that program because that was mainly the only time that I got to eat a real meal. And, you know, my mom did cook when she could and when she had food stamps available to her, but, um, you know, food stamps didn't cover the entire month. Um, but so that's why I was very thankful to the school programs. But another thing is if you were on free and reduced lunch, that didn't cover field trips. So it was also very apparent that you're a poor kid when you couldn't go take the trip to New York. Yeah. So a lot of people got, uh, a lot of people at that age in elementary school got to experience leaving the area and going on a field trip with their peers. And then they would ask me why I'm not going to what seemed like the greatest trip of their lives at the time. This actually breaks my heart in hindsight because I can think back to, uh, you know, there were kids who we knew as latchkey kids and others who would come and uh, would really look forward to lunch or would be very – I just remember going back that they'd be – the ones in the free and reduced queue would would eat lunch in a very mindful way. I mean it was an important meal for them and some would get there early that were bussed in that would take would take breakfast as well and I'm – I'm mad at, you know, I guess you can't be mad at a, a, you know, an elementary school kid for being so naive about it. I'm mad at the, I'm mad at the culture that it has allowed kids to be shamed in a certain way. I thought the shaming stops at clothing or the car that your mom and dad drop you off at. But thinking back on it, we had bake sales for the PTA mm-hmm. and not everybody could bring money to a bake sale to even buy a dollar or a $2 brownie. We had the holiday gift shop where they'd mm-hmm. sell trinkets for the PTA and not other kids. And it breaks my heart to think back on it that this was something that at an early age made like made a person feel like mm-hmm. a second class citizen. And book fairs as well. Yes, that was book a big fairs. that was a big thing in elementary school to be able to go to the book fair and pick out your favorite books. Uh, I know Junie B. Jones was a big one for me, uh, but I could never afford it, so I would just browse, and I would see people picking or other kids picking up, um, you know, bookmarks, books, a bunch of different you know, items that were available in the in the book fair and then never being able to to pick something up. But I do remember one time it fell around tax time. And so my mom got a refund and she gave me some money to go to book fair and I bought so this was two separate uh times when she gave me money for the book fair and I bought a diary each time so I could write down my account of, you know, what was going on in my childhood. And I still have those diaries till this day. And some of the diaries a lot of the entries uh, talk about me accompanying my mom to uh, churches and nonprofits and asking for money for to turn the lights on. So it was, it's pretty sad to look back and, and read it. And I didn't, it's, you know, I, I thank you, Robin, for having me on the show because 
um, and telling the story because I didn't think there was anything unique about my story. I thought it was uh, just something, you know, just part of life and that we fell on the wrong side uh, of life. And and I didn't, you know, I, a lot of people who saw the article were probably shocked to see that I've, you know, been homeless, that I was in poverty uh, because I don't talk about it too much. Uh, but I have been talking about it more lately because I feel that uh, it's important to tell the story and, and to, um, you know, talk about the barriers that exist out there for people, um, you know, to not uh, be able to grow and, you know, uplift themselves from poverty. To the extent you're ever able to focus on your studies as, as the ultimate transport out of this life, as the, as the foot in the door, when did it first occur to you that you could, if you, if you focus like a laser on school and the path ahead, that there could be a way out? I think when my mom started drilling it into us at a young age, that's when I started um, realizing that it was very important because it was one of the things she talked about all the time. She, you know, didn't get a chance to um, go to college. So I was the first generation uh, to get a college education. When I was in school with the other kids, their parents had college educations and they were doing well. So I always thought, hey, maybe I could do the same thing. You were listening to some of my 2018 interview with Adele McClure. Catch the whole episode. It's called 2023, the Yunkin Midterm, on NPR One, NPR, Spotify, and, of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, recommend, and rate us. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout-out to our listeners on NPR, member station WVTF, Radio IQ News, Virginia's NPR news station celebrating 50 years on the air. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle full D radio. And do not forget to catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's here and now I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening back with you next week.